So it was an interesting story, my journey getting to Uncork, which was then called Softech. I'd started saving money for this sort of uncertain future while I was at Uncork. And by the time I had clarity around what I wanted to do with Precursor, I planned for 18 months and budgeted for 24 months. Part of me said, ah, you don't want to go out as a loser. You got to go do another company and go out on top. And I realized that I was just at a different phase of my life and that if that was my last experience as a startup founder, I was okay with that because I felt like I'd learned a lot and I wanted to help other people be successful. And Venture's a pretty good place to do that. Welcome to Venture Confidential, a series of interviews with top minds in venture capital. I'm your host, Peter Chapman. In today's episode, I interview Charles Hudson, founding partner and sole GP at Precursor Ventures. We talk about how he found his identity as a venture capitalist, we talk about the relationship between fund size and expected returns, and we talk about his strategies for sourcing a diverse portfolio of founders. As always, if you've got questions about this episode or want to be in touch, email me at vc at heavybit.com. All right, Charles, welcome to Venture Confidential. Thank you for having me. Can you tell our audience what shoes we're both wearing right now? We are both wearing Allbirds. Is it gray? Is that the color? These are. T- it's not the charcoal gray, it's the bluish gray. I don't know. I actually I bought these for my roommate. <laughs> I bring up Allbirds because my second interview on this podcast was with Anargia Vardana, and she talked about this really cool founding team that they had just brought on board that were making this cool new cotton-based shoe. So I love that they're exploding over San Francisco now. I found about Allbirds from a founder that I backed. Oh. And he wore them every time I met with him. He had a different pair, and I go, what are those? He's like, oh, they're Allbirds. You should totally check them out before the big Allbirds boom in San Francisco. And he's the one who introduced me to them. You got in before they were cool. That's debatable, but. <laughs> uh, I want to start with your entrance into venture. You got a couple of degrees from Stanford. You got your MBA there. You spent a bunch of time in various business development roles. And then you joined Uncorked as a venture partner in 2010. What led you there? So it was an interesting story, my journey getting to Uncork, which was then called Softech. I had been working in games for about five years. So if you go all the way back to the beginning, I worked at Incutel, the CIA's venture capital group, right out of college. Really enjoyed the experience. Thought it was great, but didn't feel like I had enough operating experience or just general business knowledge mm. to be useful as I progressed in my venture career. And effectively what happened is, going into 2010, I'd been thinking about going back to investing. I hadn't committed to it, mm-hmm. but it was becoming interesting to me again. And I talked to a handful of firms about their plans. This was sort of in the, I would say, kind of most of the seed funds then, micro VCs, whatever you want to call them, kind of on fund one or fund two, looking to grow. And Jeff had funded a lot of people that I knew. Hmm. I didn't actually know Jeff that well, but he'd funded... Elad Notman from Mixer Labs, GeoAPI, and now Color Fame, Jason Shellen, who I ended up working with at Google. And I said, well, this guy's sort of overlapping with my network quite a bit. And I was contemplating joining a micro VC fund. I was meeting a lot of people trying to learn the model. And I went to Jeff and just said, hey, I have a lot of questions around how these micro VC models work, particularly when it comes to the fee structure. Like, how do you all make the math work on these mm. small funds and low fees? And what are the returns expectations? And he was really thoughtful and kind and kind of walked me through the model. 
And he said, maybe you and I should just look at some angel deals together and maybe you know something will come of that. And uh, we started looking at angel deals together. And what I learned really quickly from working with Jeff kind of at arm's length was we liked different kinds of companies. Mm. And I would meet somebody and pick up on something and he would pick up on something really different. And I felt like in a partnership what you really want is two people who have complementary skills. There were other people where I was sort of, I guess, angel dating, for lack of a better word, uh-huh. as well. And I found that we liked we either liked exactly the same companies for the same reasons, or we could never find anything to do together. Hmm. And just sort of organically at some point, Jeff and I started talking and he said, hey, you know, I'm thinking about expanding Uncork. He, at that point, didn't have an assistant. He was running the entire thing. It was him plus a back office administrator, which to me, as someone who runs my own firm, is literally impossible to imagine trying to do all of that on your own. And so we started working together towards the end of 2010 and made it official in 2011. Awesome. You said something there that I want to dive into. You said you want an explanation of how small funds make the math work. And we haven't really talked about the fee structure of a venture in this podcast yet. Could you give us a little bit on why it might be harder to make a small fund financially viable? Absolutely. So the way that venture funds work is you might have heard this expression two and twenty as just a shorthand for how venture funds work. What that really means is you get a two percent management fee on an annual basis and you get twenty percent of the proceeds known as carried interest once you've returned all the invested capital plus management fees. Mm-hmm. So if you do the math, you think about okay, you've got a fifteen million dollar fund, and let's say you've got a two percent management fee. That means you have $300,000 a year to run the fund, which maybe on the surface sounds like a lot, but it isn't. <laughs> Out of that management fee, you have to pay for all of the fund's core operations. So any legal fees you have that aren't related to sort of setting up the fund, rent, travel, conferences, a salary for yourself or your team, that 300K has to cover basically operations of the firm. And if you think mm-hmm. about, particularly in a place like San Francisco or New York, when you net out the things that you have to pay for on behalf of the fund, it doesn't leave a lot for current compensation for you as a manager. Mm. And what it really means is that you need your fund to get into carry, i.e. you need to return your invested capital plus fees so you can start making real money on the upside. Mm-hmm. Contrast that with a much bigger fund, you've got a $500 million fund, you're taking home $10 million a year in fees. It's a lot more money to have a nicer office, more people, Admin staff, it just gives you more flexibility operationally. Got it. And you're running a pretty small fund yourself now, right? I'm intimately familiar with the economics of running <laughs> a small fund. Yes. Our first fund was $15.3 million. Great. So you're trying to make it work on 300 k a year. You have a, what seems like a pretty sizable staff for a $15 million fund. How do you make it work? I'll tell you a little. Bit about how we put together the math for Precursor. So we have two full time people on the payroll. There's me and there's my associate Sydney Thomas, who joined us uh, in early January of seventeen on a full time basis. After working with me on a part time basis for a few months before that, we were able to uh, encourage our limited partners to give us a slightly higher management fee. So mm-hmm. they they've given us the right to call two and a half percent per year as opposed to two percent. Mm-hmm. Truth be told. We still have to pay back management fee before we get into carry. So I, as I remind everyone, our management fees are basically a loan to ourselves. We mm. still have to pay them back. We had until very recently a cryptocurrency researcher who recently left to start her own cryptocurrency fund called Luna Capital. And we have an entrepreneur in residence who's 
working on his own ideas. So the four of us, we were in a very lean operation. And to be honest, I spent about two years thinking about in a world where I wanted to have more financial flexibility down the road, how would I think about my own personal spending and runway? Mm-hmm. Both for thinking about buying a home or children, all these things. So I started saving money for this sort of uncertain future while I was at Uncork. And by the time I had clarity around what I wanted to do with Precursor, I'd accumulated some resources that said I can draw these down for about two years without things getting awkward. So what I tell everyone is when I was setting up Precursor Fund 1, I planned for 18 months and budgeted for 24 months. Got when it. it came to when do I think we'll have the fund closed. Got it. I want to bookmark this and come back to you and Jeff joining forces. You like different things and you like working together and you become sort of the first investment hire at Uncorked while you're working on your own thing, right? Right. And so the the tricky bit was when Jeff and I started talking, I had been working with a gentleman who I'd worked with before. We had worked together at a company called Serious Business. He ran engineering, I ran BD. He and I became really good personal friends and I thought had really complementary work styles. And he and I had been tinkering with the idea of doing this Android games company. Now mind you, this is in 2011. And I would say kindly we were about 7 to 8 years too early to Android. And I mean to give you a sense, this is the state of the art Top of the line Android phone at that time was the Nexus One, which you can maybe find in a bargain bin these days. But that was the nicest Android phone you could get. The Google Play Store was a shell of itself at that time. And we had this contrarian bet that Android was going to catch up and the tonnage of handset volume would make up for the lower monetization. And so we were in the middle of building that games company and I decided to join Uncork as a venture partner. And so I was trying to both help and support Jeff in growing Uncork, but also running a team that at peak, I think we had 12 employees, not including the founders. And this is also when Uncork was primarily a Palo Alto-based venture firm, mm-hmm. and Bionic Panda Games, our company, was decidedly a San Francisco-based company. Great. So an easy way to do things. <laughs> that sounds stressful. It was. And I think the hardest thing was trying to figure out how to be good at two jobs, mm-hmm. trying to figure out, because the, the rhythm of venture is, for the most part, you have control over your time. Most meetings can be scheduled at a time that's convenient for you until you get something that's really moving quickly. And at a startup, everything is always moving quickly. So you get these really awkward tension points where you have a really promising, fast-moving opportunity that you need to meet on behalf of your partnership, but you also are trying to ship a new version of a game and Something's got to give, and invariably I think when you're doing two really demanding things, something's got to give. And the question is, do you try to balance who gets the short end of the stick, or do you just decide, hey, this is my priority, and when push comes to shove, I'm always going to choose thing A over thing B. And you chose venture. Eventually I did. You know, I enjoyed being an entrepreneur. I really liked the people that we worked with at Bionic Panda Games. And it's interesting, I, I think in many ways... I learned a lot more from Bionic Panda than I realized even in the moment. But at the time we were done, I was probably 35 or 36 years old. And the end days of Bionic Panda were extremely stressful. Mm-hmm. It was really hard. We couldn't raise. We were trying to keep the team together. And I just stepped back and said, do I want to live this way anymore? This is the de facto state mm-hmm. 
of being a founder. It's stressful, it's difficult, it's thrilling, but you got to be all in. And it, it was taking a toll on just my life. And I asked myself, honestly, do I want to do this again? Do I want to start over from scratch with a new idea and a new team, knowing that this level of stress and anxiety is the norm? And I said, I just don't. I think the hardest thing for me was I, I hate going out feeling like a loser. And I felt like the last thing on my entrepreneurial track record as a founder was going to be an outcome I wasn't excited about. And part of me said, ah, you don't want to go out as a loser. You got to go do another company and go out on top. And I realized that I was just at a different phase of my life. And I felt like I had given my all financially, emotionally, time-wise to my games company. And that if that was my last experience as a startup founder, I was okay with that. Because I felt like I'd learned a lot and I wanted to help other people be successful. And I realized like I liked the management part of my job more than anything else. And I said, mm. I want to go back to a role where I spend most of my time helping and encouraging other people. And venture's a pretty good place to do that. Awesome. I'd love to hear more about those early years at Uncorked. What was hard? What was fun? It's funny. I didn't know any different. And I give Jeff a lot of credit. When I got to Uncork, Uncork basically ran in Jeff's inbox because uh-huh. it was a single partner fund. And so all of the information was really in his inbox. And when I first met Jeff, he had this little office, if you know downtown Palo Alto well, kind of behind Joya. It's off of university. There's a Spanish restaurant. There's a little house tucked away back there. He had a floor in what looked like a residential house. And he's probably one of the hardest working people I've ever met in my whole life in terms of ability to put hours on a task. Uh-huh. And I feel like in my career I've been lucky. Gilman Louie and, and Jeff, the two people I've really worked with the most in, in venture, both have an incredible work ethic. And that's something that I just assumed and have sort of internalized as necessary for success. Mm-hmm. But it was cool. When I got to Uncork, I think most people thought of Uncork Soft Tech as being the Jeff show. And I give him a lot of credit. He tried really hard to create an environment where the industry, our peers, the market understood that this was a new chapter for the fund and that it wasn't exclusively the Jeff show. It was going to be our thing with the clear understanding that he put a ton of work and effort into building the firm from scratch and getting the fund raised and he went really out of his way, I feel like, to try to give me space to be myself at the firm and create my own identity and be complimentary. Mm. Also, I'd never been a for-profit institutional investor, so there's a lot of things about the back office side of venture that I just had no visibility into. We didn't have capital calls at, at Incutel. We didn't have a third-party administrator. We didn't have an LP committee. We didn't have any of these things. And he sort of just threw me in. He's like, well, you're a partner at the fund now, and so this is what we do. You and I go do this together. We're going to go have some fundraising meetings, and you're going to get to know the portfolio, and you're going to start bringing in deals. And we're going to come up with a mechanism by which we talk about what things we're going to work on. Mm. And it was it was really great, and it got better when we added Ashley on the operations side. She really helped rationalize a lot of the things that Jeff and I were trying to do and kept us on task and on mission. And it's cool to see how much Uncork has grown since those little days in that small office. You said those early days were partially about finding your own identity as an investor. How would you describe yourself as an investor? I think for the first four or five years of my career as a VC, I thought there was this sort of monolithic way to be successful as an investor and involve some combination of 
technical skills, an innate sense for product, maybe people and market. And I would say in the last seven years, what I've realized is everyone has some combination of strengths and weaknesses. So there's three dimensions. I think there's sort of the people piece. How much do you trust your ability to judge people? There's the technology piece. And then there's the market piece. And with technology, I really mean technology and product. Mm-hmm. What I've realized is I know some people who are exceptional at judging product. Josh Elman at Greylock, exceptional at meeting product-oriented founders, evaluating the quality of what they've built, and being able to extrapolate that to the future. I don't know that I'm world-class at that. Mm. I feel like I have really good instincts around markets, mm. around whether a founder sitting across the table from me really understands the structure of his or her market and why they have an opportunity. And I feel like I really trust my instincts on founder ability, hmm. independent of previous success. What I realized is, you know, I should probably discount whatever feelings I have about the product sitting in front of me, positive or negative, as long as the product works, and probably trust my gut on people and markets because those are the areas where I think I have better instincts. And it took me a while to just realize that there is no monolithic way to be a, a really good investor. But a good way to be a bad investor is to overweight the things that you don't have good instincts on just because you're supposed to. That's comforting to hear. How did you figure out that these were your two strengths? It's interesting. I had an LP or limited partner, someone who invests in a venture fund, ask me, you know, what was the common thread of the four or five companies that I'd been a part of as an investor that had done particularly well. And I said, Oh, I always had an overwhelming positive feeling about the founder and his or her ability to do great things kind of from the beginning. And it was always some combination of like presence, storytelling, understanding of the market and the problem they were going after. I think about a couple of companies like Laura at Shippo, and I think about Mike at Top Hat. I think about a handful of other folks that we backed at Uncork who even in a first meeting just had this energy and clarity around what they wanted to build that was infectious. And also importantly, had a really good sense for why the market they were going after was really amenable to the product they were building and why it would be difficult for other people to compete with them. And I feel like the areas where I made my worst decisions were all companies that had some element of market traction and data, but where the data and the progress with the business caused me to not ask really good, difficult questions about the ultimate scale and what they'd actually achieved. You eventually left SoftTech to build your own, we'll call it an early seed fund. What prompted that move? It was really hard. I really enjoyed working with Jeff, and as the team grew to be me and Jeff and Steph and Andy, we had a very nice dynamic as a group. Mm. I think for me, though, when I joined, SoftTech had $15 million under management across one institutional fund and then a little bit of Jeff's personal money that he'd invested as what we called Fund One, but it was sort of his aggregated angel portfolio. Mm -hmm. In the year that I left, they crossed a $330 million in assets under management mark. And it had just become a really different place. And you know, when I joined SoftTech on Cork, I remember meeting Bastion from Postmates and him telling us about this crazy idea he had for a delivery service. And it was really, really painfully early. Mm. And he was raising a fairly modest amount of money at the time. And we were able to invest in companies like that because we wrote small checks. The companies were raising small rounds. And there was no expectation that they would have much in the way of proof. By the time I left, 
my guess is our average check was maybe a million dollars into companies that had somewhere between five and 20K in monthly recurring revenue if they were a B2B business or certainly almost always had launched product unless they were coming out of a top tier accelerator or they were a founder that we knew. And what I noticed was increasingly the founders that we would have funded five years ago would email me and tell me, hey, I'm raising a new round. I need to put together a round of 750. I would just tell them, I have nothing to offer you. Mm. I need you to be farther along for you to really fit our sort of on model check. People would say, I get it, you've changed your model, where should I go? And I would say, gosh, I don't know. Everyone else like us who's been reasonably successful has also radically increased their fund size and moved upstream. I don't have a good set of you know mini soft tech or mini freestyle or mini floodgate funds to send you to because those firms have all gotten larger. And I realized that there was a gap. And when I thought about what made me happiest about investing, it was really having a model where People were the principal input, mm-hmm. and where you're not really trying to forecast based on current monthly growth rates and churn. You're really trying to say, at a fundamental level, is this person onto something? Yes or no? And I feel like to do that work, there wasn't an easy way to do that work in the context of a hundred million dollar seed fund and still be a part of the firm's real action. And if I'm honest with myself, I think all of my colleagues had internalized our new reality. Mm-hmm. And they had accepted and I think embraced the fact we were going to write bigger checks and we were not going to do the stuff that was too early. And I couldn't let it go. I just couldn't let it go. I was like, I really miss the days of betting on people 15 times a year as a group and trusting our judgment. And the new thing we do is harder, but fulfilling in a different way and finding people who were early and really coaching and nurturing them to the next phase. This is different work. And I said, I think I like the old work we used to do more than the new work that we do. And there isn't room in a four-partner partnership to have one person who's really out of step with the group. What's behind this movement towards larger funds? Why did all these guys get bigger? The whole increase in fund size piece I think venture is a funny business. In the beginning for most people, unless you're remarkably talented or you're spinning out of a really well-known existing fund, raising your first fund is really hard. Mm. It's really a grind. It took me about almost two years to raise Precursor Fund 1. It was not easy. And I think it's so hard to raise. And by the time you get to Fund 2 or Fund 3 and it's working, in the mind of the people who back venture funds, you go from being this very risky thing to this very proven thing or this very low-risk enterprise to back and suddenly when you were struggling to get 15 or 20 million dollars for a fund you have capacity to raise 50 or 75 and it feels good it feels validating i assume it does it hasn't happened to us at precursor yet but i assume it feels validating and i was there at uncork when we went from fund 2 to fund 3 to fund 4 and it it feels good to be recognized by investors who say the things you said you would do you did them and they worked out well and you're doing a good job the other thing is management fee. As we talked about earlier, you get 2% of what you raise in a given fund as fee, and you're allowed to stack management fees on top of each other. So as you can imagine, let's say you had a fund one that was $40 million, and you had a 2% management fee, and you had a second fund that was $60 million. You get that 2% on that whole $100 million pool. So with more management fees, you can do things like get a bigger office and maybe have space for your portfolio companies 
to work alongside you. You can hire a full-time assistant. You can hire a talent partner. You can hire an operations team. You can have better portfolio company events at nicer venues. You just have more levers that you can pull to try to make your firm successful. And for mm. a lot of people, I think that's attractive. And also, to be honest, if you've run a really small fund on low management fees and made some financial sacrifices of your own, the idea of having more day-to-day comfort is appealing. I think the challenge is, I've always believed that you know, fund size is destiny. If you tell me how large your fund is, I can probably predict the size check that you like to write and where you like to get involved. And fund models are elastic to a point. So I think the difference between a $10 million fund and a $25 million fund is fairly trivial. 25 to 50, it's a difference in scale but not in substance. You go from 50 to 100, you're doing different work. I'd love to get explicit there. What changes between 25 and 50? So I think at 25, so I think the way that a lot of VCs think about it is, okay, what if I write this check and this company is wildly successful, what percentage of my fund will it return? So if you think about it, we'll just do a little thought experiment. Let's say you write a check of 250k into a company and you buy 10% of that company, so it's a two and a half million dollar post. That company sell, raises no more money and sells for a hundred million dollars. You're psyched. Your little fund just got $10 million back. Life is good. Imagine you're a hundred million dollar fund that wrote that same 250k check, got that same 10%. Company sells for a hundred million dollars. You get $10 million back, which is also great, but not great in the context of a $100 million fund. You have to run that experiment 10 times over in order to get back to even. And so I think the natural tendency is for a larger fund is you tell yourself, well, look, if my goal is to return multiples of the capital that I raised, the check that I write has to be big enough such that a 30, 40, 50x, a huge home run multiple, at least returns my fund. And so you start talking yourself out of writing small checks at low prices because you say, look, if it's a good company, it'll come around again. Mm-hmm. There'll be an opportunity to invest more money and we'll write a bigger check later. Mm. And you get out of the business of writing small speculative checks and you start writing bigger checks to companies that are farther along. And now, as you said, you're working with founders in a different way and you're evaluating them in a different way. It's less about people and an idea and more about metrics and kind of a trend. And I think the hard thing with metrics is you can't ignore them. Mm. Once they exist, <laughs> you have to, you have to <laughs> deal with them, right? Sure. So here's like a thought experiment, right? You find a company that's at $10,000 a month in revenue. Low churn, good growth. That's great. The real question is still the same as it was a year ago when that company was getting started is are they really onto something? And my fear at Uncork was always I would find a company that was doing $10,000 a month in revenue, but that would top out at 250 k a month. Mm. That they were just going after something small, and they had just made really good progress in finding early customers in what was ultimately a small market. I was like, this is not a good outcome for me to optimize for. This is not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for companies that are going after something big. And what I realized for me was if there's no data, it really frees my mind to, to, to do the thought experiment of, how big could this actually be? Is there a world where this company could actually become a really big company? It allows me to focus on the fundamentals and not get distracted by early data. And in a world where you're looking for a company that can ultimately do one to $200 million in annual revenue, 
the difference between zero and 10K in monthly revenue is actually, it's just noise. Mm. It actually doesn't matter. And so I, I learned about myself. I actually find it's easier for me to analyze companies from scratch than it is once they have even a little bit of data. So what does a good exit look like for Precursor? So I tell founders all the time, we have the same enemy and it's dilution. We're a small fund, and so for me, I'm always looking for how can I keep my ownership as high as possible and stay aligned with the founder. So the nice thing for me is founders don't like dilution, Precursor doesn't like dilution because we're a small fund. But our typical entry point is low to mid single digit millions of dollars in terms of pre-money valuation. Mm-hmm. Anything north of 50 for us is a big deal. And really anything north of 20 is a multiple for us in many cases. And so the thing I didn't want to do was construct a fund model where I needed multiple decacorns to make the model work. And so I think one way to think about it is to just reason backwards. So we'll just do a quick thought experiment again. Let's say you have a $50 million fund. Your goal is to return three times your money to your investors on a net basis. So you need to turn that $50 million into $200 million. Mm-hmm. So you need $200 million in proceeds to you. If you own 10% of a company on average at the time that it goes public or gets acquired, you need $2 billion in exits to get you back to your $200 million. But the odds are pretty low that you're going to own, in a $50 million fund, that you're going to own 10% on an exit. So if you cut that in half and say, let's assume you own 5%, now you need $4 billion in exits. So you're talking about you need a nest plus a drop cam plus something else just to get you to 3x. And so the math gets really scary and daunting as your fund gets bigger. But what you realize too is the easiest lever to change is try to own more mm-hmm. because it means the scale of the outcome that you need is smaller. Wait, I feel like you were saying bigger funds require like sort of more total exit valuation. Right. And the way to get there is to buy more ownership, That's which right. comes from just plowing more capital That's in these right. companies. That's right. And you're in this kind of cool niche. I'm reminded strongly of the conversation I had with Jody a couple weeks ago, where she said, Yeah, you know, there's a whole bunch of founders who aren't looking to create really capital intensive businesses and are really underserved by these more traditional venture funds. That can only write checks above a certain size and need you to go after billion dollar businesses. So I'm doing pretty well talking to founders with moderate ambitions who are willing to take moderate amounts of money at reasonable valuations. Yeah, I mean, I tell founders all the time, like, I want them to own as much of the business as they possibly can. I want this to be a life changing wealth event for them. And I think one of the biggest differences I've noticed probably in the last five to seven years is there's just a lot. More transparency and visibility around fundraising. And I think in the common narrative, raising more money is a sign of success. Mm. And the more you raise, the better the perception of your company. The challenge with that, though, is that it's not actually good for you as a founder. Maybe you're getting to participate in a secondary transaction and sell a portion of your ownership and you're getting some short term liquidity. But in many cases, that's not what happens. Look, it's great to have a high valuation. But ultimately, I think as a founder, it's really what's your exit valuation times the amount of the company that you own. Mm -hmm. And there isn't, I would say, as much celebration for companies that are truly capital efficient Mm. in terms of the amount of money they raise before they exit. And I think it's because it's sort of a counter narrative. The thinking is, 
hey, getting the $100 million Series C from a really famous growth fund that, you know, in theory sees everything out there and anoints you as a winner or getting four or $500 million from the Vision Fund and anointing you as a winner, it surely is a validation, but it's dilutive to you as the founder. And so what I think is we don't lower the ambition bar at Precursor. I still want people who want to build really big businesses and who have a lot of ambition. But I do look for people who, th- who think really hard about how much money do I actually need to make this happen, who are unafraid to be the lower capitalized company in a battle if capital isn't sort of what decides the winner. I want to shift topics here. In an interview with TechCrunch, when you were starting Precursor, you laid out some fairly audacious goals about portfolio composition. You said you wanted a quarter of your founders to be women, a quarter to be African-American, and a quarter to be Latinx. How are you doing against those? So we're doing okay. So we look at the data on two dimensions. We look at the data on a company level, which is you know how many of our companies have an African American or a Latinx founder, and we look at the founder population level too. So that's looking at the entirety of the people as a group. So one is just you know we have call it eighty some odd companies in mm-hmm. the portfolio at the moment. And that's about one hundred and sixty founders. So we look at it through two dimensions. And I feel good about how we've done with female founders. A little bit north of 30, probably 35%. I, I need to, to run the numbers again. We've added a few companies lately. But call it 35% of the companies that we've backed have a female founder on the team. We're very focused on not management team, but founding team, because I think founding team has a disproportionate impact on culture. Mm-hmm. And we're at about 25% black and Latinx. So we're we're a little ahead of schedule on women and about where we need to be in terms of people of color. I believe 27% of our portfolio companies have a female CEO. So the interesting thing to me is the majority of the female founders in our portfolio are the CEO. They're mm. the person who's, you know, in charge of running the business, which I think is a good sign. Where I'm disappointed is we have not done as well with black women or Latina entrepreneurs. We have not hit my internal benchmarks there. And I think you know it's important to have some rough sense for where you want to end up. Otherwise, you'll just end up where you end up. Mm. And so we set those benchmarks out at Precursor really to keep ourselves honest. And my view is if you're a Series B or Series C investor, you're dealing with companies that were funded years ago when the climate might have been different. And it's harder for you to impact your pipeline at Precursor, we're in the judgment business. We're dealing with people that are pre-traction, pre-revenue, pre-data. Mm. This is really our subjective judgment on their capacity as founders. And if every team we back, if one out of four doesn't have a woman on the team or a person of color, it would cause me to pause. And towards the end of last year, we looked at our pipeline and I said, we are below my comfort zone when it comes to the proportion of our companies that have an African-American woman in particular on the team. And we are not going to force a fit. Mm-hmm. We're not going to go out and say no new investments until we find one. But we are going to A, let our network know that we want to see more here. On average, the default for taking a meeting with an African American female founder is going to tilt more towards a yes. Mm-hmm. And we're going to be really thoughtful and introspective about maybe why we don't see as many African American or Latina entrepreneurs. And it's interesting, like, you know, we've done really well with black men. In our portfolio. And part of me says, well, that's because that's who I am. 
and I have a natural affinity for them, and it's very easy and comfortable for me to meet a black male entrepreneur in hmm. any context and have an almost immediate cultural and gender-based bond. And you know, we've talked about City and I have talked about this. Are there things that we're doing that we're not aware of as a firm that are discouraging African American women or Latina entrepreneurs to apply? I don't think so. One other change you made strategically is I noticed there were quite a few entrepreneurs of color in categories that we didn't play. Like historically, we have not done consumer products mm. or physical goods, and I would meet people who were working on products in those categories, and we changed that rule this year. I'm happy to say that in Q1 of 2018, the pendulum's swinging back. We're seeing more of the kinds of entrepreneurs that we want to see and the proportions that we want to see. And I'm not sure whether we're just paying more attention to our funnel and being intentional or whether we just went through a dry spell. But I know if we didn't have some sense of where we wanted to end up, we might not have noticed and stopped and said, hey, are we doing everything we could be doing to get the people we want to come see us? So you listed a couple of concrete strategies there. You said we gave ourselves a target, we let our network know who we were looking for, and we thought about domains to invest in in relation to sort of founder demographics. Are there other strategies that we venture capitalists should be engaging in to make sure we're sourcing from a diverse group of founders? So a lot of people ask me about, hey, how can we change our funnel and our sourcing strategy? A couple of things on that. I think one is, part of it is you can't go to the same places and see the same people and expect to magically change your funnel. I think part of this is being intentional and deliberate about going to places, conferences, geographies that you haven't gone before. Because if those people are already in your network and were easy to find, you would have already found them. So part of this requires like a behavior change on the part of investors, and candidly, not everybody wants to do that. Some people say, you know, I live in the peninsula and I like my life. I don't mm-hmm. want to go to San Francisco on Thursday at 8 p.m. to meet a bunch of founders. I don't mm-hmm. want to go to that meetup, that happy hour. So be it. But I think if you don't change your context, you're unlikely to change your funnel. One other thing that we were really intentional about at the beginning of Precursor was I really wanted our website to showcase the founders that we've backed, not really me or Sydney. And so we spent a lot of time and money taking professional headshots of the founders that we backed. And I wanted everyone who landed on our website to see at least two people that look like them, to send the signal that you know anyone can be part of our founder community. This is not exclusively only for people of color or only not for people of color. It's not only for men, and it's also not for men. And so wanted to have the really clear visual signal to people that this is for everyone mm. and that we're open. And I get a lot of feedback from founders that that has an impact on them. If they land on our homepage and they see the people over products and they see the faces and they say, well, this is a firm where I could envision myself being part of that collage. I think the other thing is founders today are more empowered and I think vocal about the sort of saying-doing gap. Mm. And I think in venture, maybe five, seven years ago, you could have said, our firm is very focused on diversifying our pipeline. It's really important to us. And that's why we only have white male founders on our homepage. I think today's founder will call BS on that. And we'll just say, if it's that important to you, show me the proof, show me the evidence. And in the absence of evidence, I'm going to take the people that you funded and the decisions you've made and put more weight on that than I will on what you tell me. Mm. And I don't blame them. In every other domain of life, if someone 
told you one thing and showed you something else with their actions, you'd probably default to believing what they do, not what they say. And I think that's created a real conundrum for some people who don't have good ways to access these communities. And the last thing I would say is, part of this is what kind of posture do you want your firm to have? Some firms, I think, we try to be open at Precursor. We answer cold emails, we respond in to open DMs on Twitter. We try to be accessible. Doesn't mean everyone's going to get a meeting. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean everyone's going to get money. But it means everyone has a shot at pitching us and approaching us and getting a response. There's lots of other firms that I think are fairly closed. And they're, they're upfront about it, that they really want to meet people that get referred to them through people that they know and trust. And in some cases, by multiple people that they know and trust. And that is going to always tilt your network towards referrals from people that you know. And if the people that you know are like you and have the similar network, you're not going to easily diversify your portfolio. So I would encourage some firms just to take a look at your own website, your own social media presence, and just the way that the firm conducts itself and say, if I were a person who didn't know this firm, would I think it's open or closed? Mm. It's so refreshing to hear you say that because something that's been said a lot on this podcast is how important referrals are to a lot of venture capitalists. Right? We've heard VC after VC say, well, my portfolio is my biggest source of referrals. And I appreciate you calling out that you know when we rely on our networks to source for us, we get homogenous portfolios. I think that's all I got on sourcing. Anything else you want to say on the topic? It's funny. One of the questions I get all the time is, hey, what's your best source? Mm. And we make 15 to 20 and occasionally more than that investments a year. And every time I think I've found a trend, something comes out of left field that completely shatters the trend. So I would say our portfolio companies as a source, those referrals get priority because they're already in the family. Mm-hmm. And if I can't treat the people I've backed, if I can't treat the referrals that they send with time, attention, and care, then they'll stop sending them to me. And I don't want that to happen. But we've, you know, one of our top performing companies is a referral from a founder that we invested in at Uncork, who I was not particularly close to, but liked. He said, There's a guy that went to college with me. He's got this kind of interesting idea. I don't know much about it. You should meet him. And that's how our investment in the athletic happened. Huh. And Alex and Adam have done a great job. But that came from a founder from the SoftTech Uncork Network who I knew but didn't know like super well. And you know, I've had companies that I've met through accelerator programs where I didn't like them on demo day, but mm. they've come back later. I've had referrals from founders that I passed on mm-hmm. who sent them. So I've just become much more sanguine about the fact that I will treat referrals from founders that we back and from my limited partners with an extra level of care because they've they've earned the right to expect that. And beyond that, I have no idea where our next great company is going to, to come from. It could come from a conference. It could come from a dinner party. It could come from anywhere. So we're not quite as rigid in saying, like, oh, if it, look, I'll be honest, there's a slightly higher bar for people who come in cold. They have to write a better email, make a stronger case, and be a little bit more persistent. But they will get on the calendar if they have a good idea. And I just think it's it's really hard to know at the stage where I invest where the next great company is going to come from. Awesome. I ask all my guests the same question in closing, which is, what do you wish you knew going into this? I've thought about a lot, but I wish I knew. 
I'm going to answer a question in a weird way. I'm glad I didn't actually know how hard it was to start a venture fund. <laughs> because I think if I had known all of the challenges that you face as a first-time fund manager mm. in terms of recruiting new limited partners, figuring out your own strategy, building a brand, building relationships with people that you knew in one context at your old firm, getting to know that I didn't realize how difficult and challenging it is. It's very rewarding though. But I think if I had known, I don't know if I would have done it. And I think that's kind of true of a lot of entrepreneurial endeavors that if you mm-hmm. really knew what you were signing up for, you might not do it. And so I'm glad I was sort of blissfully naive and thought that this will be difficult but straightforward. Otherwise, there'd be no precursor. Where can our listeners find you? I'm on Twitter probably too much. I'm just at C Hudson and we're at Precursor VC. And I actually read and respond to almost every well-written cold email I get. So I'm just Charles at PrecursorVC.com if people have things to send to me. I don't think getting in touch with us should be a barrier to getting things reviewed. Awesome. And you've got your own podcast. We do. So I do a lot of podcasting on my own, but I really want to put in a plug for my associate Sydney's podcast. Oh yeah, tell us about that. It's awesome. It's called Be About It. She interviews people that she thinks are um, building products that appeal to the wide swath of the economy, not not just the 1% at the very, very top. And, inter- and does really good, I think, interviews with entrepreneurs that are building really cool businesses that address a really wide set of, of people's concerns. So I'm a huge podcast junkie. I'm really glad to be here. Thanks for listening to this episode of Venture Confidential. Venture Confidential is brought to you by Heavybit. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out our library, home to great educational talks by top investors, entrepreneurs, and other industry leaders.